1: It's January 10th, 1870. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Ariel, Rebecca and Ali, The Retrospectors.
2: For well over 100 years now, the name Rockefeller has been a byword for extreme wealth... And it was today in history in 1870 that the man himself, John D. Rockefeller, Sr., by most estimates the richest American in history, took a major step along the path to enormous riches by forming Standard Oil, the company which would soon establish almost total dominance over the world's oil and make him the world's first billionaire.
1: He'd been in this game, the oil game, for a while to get to this point, although as an oil refiner, not as an oil maker, digger, (laughs) because oil had begun to be tapped at source uh, for the first time 11 years prior to this, in 1859. Uh, Before then, people had to scoop it out the water, as we've discussed in previous episodes, harvest it from a whale. Um, And he had the insight to see that there was money to be made in refining the oil and getting scientists to work out the byproducts that could be made from that oil. But really, Rockefeller is
3: most notable for kind of the rapaciousness of his business practices. In the introduction to uh, the history of the Standard Oil Company by a historian called David Chalmers, it says John D. Rockefeller and his associates did not build the Standard Oil Company in the broad rooms of Wall Street banks. They fought their way to control by rebate and drawback, bribe and blackmail, espionage and price cutting, and perhaps even more importantly, by ruthless, never slothful efficiency of organisation and production.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, he came into the oil industry at a time of wild instability, massive ups and downs. Oil refining was almost a cottage industry there were lots of independent people who wanted to get into this new oil business and so they set up their own refineries and it reached a point that there was more refining capability than there was oil being produced at this time almost all the oil in the world was coming from the usa and almost all of that was coming from a handful of oil fields in pennsylvania there hadn't been any of the you know texan in a big stetson hat hits the ground and oil comes gushing up none of that (laughs) had happened yet so there wasn't actually that much oil to go around And because the oil extraction industry was so new, there wasn't really that much of a market for it. So he realised if he had control over the refineries and the output of refined oil, that he could keep the prices nice and high.
1: Yeah, but there's also quite a lot of vision and risk, which, you know, it's easy to see from this vantage point, obviously, that investing in oil was a good idea. Mm. But bear in mind, cars hadn't been invented yet. So initially... This was a lamp play. Like He was like, (laughs) I'm going to be number one in lamps. And he didn't know. People didn't know then that you'd get petroleum jelly and machine lubricants and chemical cleaners and tar and paraffin wax. I owe my unchapped lips to him. He didn't
2: know that then. It was a punt. <laughs> yeah, well, unlike his competitors in these primitive days of the oil business, he didn't discard everything but the kerosene. It was the kerosene that fueled the lamps, and that was where the money was. But he realised that if he could rely on a good team of in-house scientists, which he developed, he could use distillation to make use of every single component of crude oil.
3: I'd love to know what was going on in those R&D departments. Were they like, OK, OK, let's try this. Can you drink it? <laughs> 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 no, uh, can animals drink it. No.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He kind of made it sound easy. I mean, the peak of Standard Oil's power, 90% of the oil extracted in the world was being processed in the refineries. But as Rockefeller mused later, we realised that public sentiment would be against us if we actually refined all the oil.
3: (laughs) You know, like the, the foundational principle of capitalism for those people who believe in it is this idea that like industries will sort themselves out by companies competing with each other. He was like, I reckon we should uh, just have one company owning all of the things. (laughs) And that means you'll get less of this market
1: price fluctuation, which he called inefficiencies. Yeah. So this idea today in history, incorporating Standard Oil, which was previously a partnership of all the other companies that he'd scooped up and all the other enterprises that he'd started but was getting unwieldy, sort of was able to be presented as, well, we've tidied ourselves up. There we are. We're one company now. Yeah. But then he carried on sewing up that market dominance.
3: Yeah. So in the first three months of 1872, he'd either bought out or shut down or bankrupted 22 of his 26 (laughs) Cleveland competitors. And he really wasn't going to be in any way sympathetic to the idea of goodwill pricing. He offered what he called a fair market price for refineries that were, you know, losing money with this outdated equipment. But the reason that they were losing money and the reason that they had outdated equipment was because... he was monopolising every aspect of the process and was forcing them out of business
2: he was like I'll give you a fair price for your business whose value has now been completely destroyed
0: by me (laughs) yeah
2: Well, this was called the Cleveland Massacre of 1872. And one of the key elements in making it work was this secret pact between rail companies and Standard Oil Mm. by which it was able to transport oil far cheaper than its rivals could, which meant that small refineries just couldn't compete. They didn't realise at the time what was going on. And one of the oil men who was put out of business had a daughter called Ida Tarbell, who went on to be a journalist who would go on to investigate Standard Oil and would prompt a case against them, would eventually make it to the Supreme Court court.
1: Mm. Yeah, she basically devoted her career to pieces on standard oil, didn't she? But very very successfully to the point where although by the end of his life if you ask most Americans who's Rockefeller, they probably through the sheer billions that he would invested in philanthropy had mm. mentioned his charitable efforts. I mean he always gave, he was a Christian, he always gave some money to charity, but that only really came about because he had been sort of typified in the press as the ultimate ruthless capitalist who wanted to put you out of business.
3: Yeah, so that exact sense was what caught the attention of politicians who started passing antitrust laws to target his company explicitly. And Rockefeller's response to this was to kind of retire from daily operations in 1895 at the age of just 56. But by 1911, the Supreme Court had found Standard Oil to be in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. And as a result, Standard Oil was then split into 34 independent companies. But these are the companies that we know today, including the likes of Chevron and ExxonMobil and so on. And actually, the court ordered breakup, actually made Rockefeller hundreds of millions of dollars because uh, he continued to own a quarter of Standard Oil's stock and each individual piece of his company was worth just a little bit more than the whole. And so as each
1: bit was sold off, he Mm. got more and more rich. Yeah, he got to stay on the board. And then some of them merged with each other, that was allowed. Yeah. So then he got to benefit <laughs> from that as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, seeing as the point of the Supreme Court ruling was to break down the dominance of Standard Oil, and then you see that some of these, you know, these defanged new companies became ExxonMobil and Chevron, and others became part of Shell and BP. Yeah. It was like, mission accomplished I guess (laughs) the thing is with Rockefeller though I think it's very easy to seize upon all of the unscrupulous acts that Standard Oil performed in its time but I think Rockefeller himself it was very important for him to be seen as righteous and to feel that he was righteous too I mean as you mentioned Dolly he was a Christian and he did give a lot of money to charity from the off even from his very first profits as a young man he gave 6% of his salary to charity etc and that seems to be rooted a lot in his childhood his father was william was this real character he was a traveling salesman an occasional con man and he wasn't above selling a bit of snake oil on the side as well i mean all three things
1: you've just labeled him as you could have just said homeopathic doctor i mean that's what he was
2: (laughs) (laughs) yes although he did have to move around a lot in order to keep selling it which i feel is the definition of the snake oil salesman but and he you know he had a mistress who his wife eliza turned a blind eye to and eliza was completely different i have no idea how these two people managed to get together she was a very pious baptist who really instilled in young john d rockefeller that he had to be industrious and thrifty you know quite old-fashioned I guess Protestant principles and he really held to those through his whole life.
3: He did, he actually dropped out of school and worked first as an assistant bookkeeper earning 50 cents a day and it's this really massive pivotal moment in his life where for the rest of his life he celebrated it as job day it was like more important to him even than his birthday which by, by the way he had quite a lot of, he lived to 98 years old but every <laughs> year he would celebrate job day rather than his birthday because he said in his auto biography, all my future seemed to hinge on that one day, and I often tremble when I ask myself the question, what if I had not got that job?
1: That's September the 26th, by the way, if you'd like to commemorate Job Day. I honestly don't know what date I got my first job working in the call centre at Ticketmaster, but it certainly doesn't deserve an annual event. I've never celebrated it since.
2: He also founded a bunch of stuff that doesn't have his name on it. The University of Chicago um, owes its founding to Rockefeller's donation and also Mm. Spellman College, which is a historically black women's college, is named after his wife, wife. Laura Spellman, who was a women's rights activist and a civil rights activist as well.
3: And his biography was almost written by Winston Churchill. The Rockefeller family actually approached Churchill, but he set his price too high, and they were like, eh, maybe what? not in that case. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez,
1: As a freelancer, you know, someone approaches you how much do you want to charge for doing this job? You, surely rule number one is, like, evaluate the client. Oh, yeah, it's but- for a bank, I'll add a zero. <laughs> well, Rockefeller. Yeah. Rockefeller says, write my biography. And, <laughs> how can the price be too high? Like, he can literally <laughs> afford anything. Tomorrow. So what they did is they created this secret unit in Gatwick's North Terminal. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, part of the ACAST Creator Network.